Sir Walter Scott. American Cooper asserts, in one of his books, that there is an instinctive tendency in men to look at any man who has become distinguished. True, surely, as all observation and survey of mankind, from China to Peru, from Nebuchadnezzar to Old Hickory, will testify. Why do men crowd towards the improved drop at Newgate, eager to catch a sight? The man about to be hanged is in a distinguished situation. Men crowd to such extent, that Greenacres is not the only life choked out there. Again, ask of these leathern vehicles, cabriolets, neat flies, with blue men and women in them, that scour all thoroughfares, whither so fast. To see dear Mrs. Rigamarole, the distinguished female, great Mr. Rigamarole, the distinguished male. Or, consider that crowning phenomenon, and summary of modern civilization, a soiree of lions. Glittering are the rooms, well-lighted, thronged, bright flows their undulatory flood of blonde gowns and dress coats, a soft smile dwelling on all faces, for behold there also flow the lions, hovering distinguished, oracles of the age, of one sort or another. Oracles really pleasant to see, whom it is worthwhile to go and see, look at them, but inquire not of them, depart rather and be thankful. For your lion soiree admits not of speech, there lies the specialty of it. A meeting together of human creatures, and yet so high has civilization gone, the primary aim of human meeting, that soul might in some articulate utterance unfold itself to soul, can be dispensed within it. Utterance there is not, nay, there is a certain grinning play of tongue fence, and make-believe of utterance, considerably worse than none. For which reason it has been suggested, with an eye to sincerity and silence in such lion soirees, might not each lion be, for example, ticketed, as wine decanters are. Let him carry, slung round him, in such ornamental manner as seemed good, his silver label with name engraved, you lift his label and read it, with what farther ocular survey you find useful, and speech is not needed at all. O Fenimore Cooper, it is most true there is, an instinctive tendency in men to look at any man that has become distinguished, and, moreover, an instinctive desire in men to become distinguished and be looked at. For the rest, we will call it a most valuable tendency this, indispensable to mankind. Without it, where were star and garter, and significance of rank, where were all ambition, money-getting, respectability of gig or no gig, and, in a word, the main impetus by which society moves, the main force by which it hangs together. A tendency, we say, of manifold results, of manifold origin, not ridiculous only, but sublime, which some inclined to deduce from the mere gregarious purblind nature of man, prompting him to run, as dim-eyed animals do, towards any glittering object, were it but a scoured tankard, and mistake it for a solar luminary, or even, sheep-like, to run and crowd because many have already run. It is indeed curious to consider how men do make the gods that themselves worship. For the most famed man, round whom all the world rapturously huzzas and venerates, as if his like were not, is the same man whom all the world was wont to jostle into the kennels, not a changed man, but in every fibre of him the same man. Foolish world, what went ye out to see? A tankard scoured bright, and do there not lie, of the self-same pewter, whole barrowfuls of tankards, though by worse fortune all still in the dim state. And yet, at bottom, it is not merely our gregarious sheep-like quality, but something better, and indeed best, which has been called, the perpetual fact of hero-worship, our inborn sincere love of great men. Not the guilt-farthing, for its own sake, do even fools covet, but the gold guinea which they mistake it for.
veneration of great men is perennial in the nature of man. This, in all times, especially in these, is one of the blessedest facts predicable of him. In all times, even in these seemingly so disobedient times, it remains a blessed fact, so cunningly has nature ordered it, that whatsoever man ought to obey, he cannot but obey. Show the dullest clodpole, show the haughtiest featherhead, that a soul higher than himself is actually here, were his knees stiffened into brass, he must down and worship. So it has been written, and may be cited and repeated till known to all. Understand it well, this of, hero worship, was the primary creed, and has intrinsically been the secondary and ternary, and will be the ultimate and final creed of mankind, indestructible, changing in shape, but in essence unchangeable, whereon polities, religions, loyalties, and all highest human interests have been and can be built, as on a rock that will endure while man endures. Such as hero worship, so much lies in that our inborn sincere love of great men, in favor of which unspeakable benefits of the reality, what can we do but cheerfully pardon the multiplex ineptitudes of the semblance, cheerfully wish even lion soirees, with labels for their lions or without that improvement, all manner of prosperity. Let hero worship flourish, say we, and the more and more assiduous chase after gilt farthings while guineas are not yet forthcoming. Herein, at lowest, is proof that guineas exist, that they are believed to exist, and valued. Find great men, if you can, if you cannot, still quit not the search, in defect of great men, let there be noted men, in such number, to such degree of intensity as the public appetite can tolerate. Whether Sir Walter Scott was a great man, is still a question with some, but there can be no question with any one that he was a most noted and even notable man. In this generation there was no literary man with such a popularity in any country, there have only been a few with such, taking in all generations and all countries. Nay, it is farther to be admitted that Sir Walter Scott's popularity was of a select sort rather, not a popularity of the populace. His admirers were at one time almost all the intelligent of civilized countries, and to the last included, and do still include, a great portion of that sort. Such fortune he had, and has continued to maintain for a space of some twenty or thirty years. So long the observed of all observers, a great man or only a considerable man, here surely, if ever, is a singular circumstance, is a, distinguished, man. In regard to whom, therefore, the, instinctive tendency, on other men's part cannot be wanting. Let men look, where the world has already so long looked. And now, while the new, earnestly expected life, by his son-in-law and literary executor, again summons the whole world's attention round him, probably for the last time it will ever be so summoned, and men are in some sort taking leave of a notability, and about to go their way, and commit him to his fortune on the flood of things, why should not this periodical publication likewise publish its thought about him? Readers of miscellaneous aspect, of unknown quantity and quality, are waiting to hear it done. With small inward vocation, but cheerfully obedient to destiny and necessity, the present reviewer will follow a multitude, to do evil or to do no evil, will depend not on the multitude but on himself. One thing he did decidedly wish, at least to wait till the work were finished, for the six promised volumes, as the world knows, have flowed over into a seventh, which will not for some weeks yet see the light. But the editorial powers, wearied with waiting, have become peremptory, and declare that, finished or not finished, they will have their hands washed of it at this opening of the year. Perhaps it is best. The physiognomy of Scott will not be much altered for us by that seventh volume, 
the prior six have altered it but little, as, indeed, a man who has written some two hundred volumes of his own, and lived for thirty years amid the universal speech of friends, must have already left some likeness of himself. Be it as the peremptory editorial powers require. First, therefore, a word on the life itself. Mr. Lockhart's known powers justify strict requisition in his case. Our verdict in general would be, that he has accomplished the work he schemed for himself in a creditable workmanlike manner. It is true, his notion of what the work was, does not seem to have been very elevated. To picture forth the life of Scott according to any rules of art or composition, so that a reader, on adequately examining it, might say to himself, there is Scott, there is the physiognomy and meaning of Scott's appearance and transit on this earth. Such was he by nature, so did the world act on him, so he on the world, with such result and significance for himself and us, this was by no manner of means Mr. Lockhart's plan. A plan which, it is rashly said, should preside over every biography. It might have been fulfilled with all degrees of perfection, from that of the Odyssey down to Thomas Elwood or lower. For there is no heroic poem in the world but is at bottom a biography, the life of a man. Also, it may be said, there is no life of a man, faithfully recorded, but as a heroic poem of its sort, rhymed or unrhymed. It is a plan one would prefer, did it otherwise suit, which it does not, in these days. Seven volumes sell so much dearer than one, air so much easier to write than one. The Odyssey, for instance, what were the value of the Odyssey sold per sheet? One paper of Pickwick, or say, the inconsiderable fraction of one. This, in commercial algebra, were the equation, Odyssey equal to Pickwick divided by an unknown integer. There is a great discovery still to be made in literature, that of paying literary men by the quantity they do not write. Nay, in sober truth, is not this actually the rule in all writing, and, moreover, in all conduct and acting? Not what stands above ground, but what lies unseen under it, as the root and subterrene element it sprang from and emblemed forth, determines the value. Under all speech that is good for anything there lies a silence that is better. Silence as deep as eternity, speech as shallow as time. Paradoxical does it seem. Woe for the age, woe for the man, quack-ridden, bespeeched, bespouted, blown about like barren Sahara, to whom this world-old truth were altogether strange. Such we say as the rule, acted on or not, recognized or not, and he who departs from it, what can he do but spread himself into breadth and length, into superficiality and saleability, and, except as filigree, become comparatively useless? One thinks, had but the hogshead of thin wash, which sours in a week ready for the kennels, been distilled, been concentrated. Our dear Fenimore Cooper, whom we started with, might, in that way, have given us one natty leatherstocking, one melodious synopsis of man and nature in the West, for it lay in him to do it, almost as a Saint-Pierre did for the islands of the East, and the hundred incoherences, cobbled hastily together by order of Colburn and Company, had slumbered in chaos, as all incoherences ought if possible to do. Verily this same genius of diffuse writing, of diffuse acting, is a Moloch, and souls pass through the fire to him, more than enough. Surely, if ever discovery was valuable and needful, it were that above indicated, of paying by the work not visibly done, which needful discovery we will give the whole projecting, railwaying, knowledge-diffusing, march of intellect and otherwise promotive and locomotive societies in the old and new world, any required length of centuries to make. Once made, such discovery once made, we too will fling cap into the air, and shout, I.O.P.N.
the devil is conquered, and, in the meanwhile, study to think it nothing miraculous that seven biographical volumes are given where one had been better, and that several other things happen, very much as they from of old were known to do, and are like to continue doing. Mr. Lockhart's aim, we take it, was not that of producing any such high-flown work of art as we hint at, or indeed to do much other than to print, intelligently bound together by order of time, and by some requisite intercalary exposition, all such letters, documents and notices about Scott as he found lying suitable, and as it seemed likely the world would undertake to read. His work, accordingly, is not so much a composition, as what we may call a compilation well done. Neither is this a task of no difficulty. This too is a task that may be performed with extremely various degrees of talent, from the life and correspondence of Hannah Moore, for instance, up to this life of Scott, there is a wide range indeed. Let us take the seven volumes, and be thankful that they are genuine in their kind. Nay, as to that of their being seven and not one, it is right to say that the public so required it. To have done other, would have shown little policy in an author. Had Mr. Lockhart laboriously compressed himself, and instead of well-done compilation, brought out the well-done composition, in one volume instead of seven, which not many men in England are better qualified to do, there can be no doubt but his readers for the time had been immeasurably fewer. If the praise of magnanimity be denied him, that of prudence must be conceded, which perhaps he values more. The truth is, the work, done in this manner too, was good to have, Scott's biography, if uncomposed, lies printed and indestructible here, in the elementary state, and can at any time be composed, if necessary, by whosoever has a call to that. As it is, as it was meant to be, we repeat, the work is vigorously done. Sagacity, decision, candor, diligence, good manners, good sense, these qualities are throughout observable. The dates, calculations, statements, we suppose to be all accurate much laborious inquiry, some of it impossible for another man, has been gone into, the results of which are imparted with due brevity. Scott's letters, not interesting generally, yet never absolutely without interest, are copiously given, copiously, but with selection, the answers to them still more select. Narrative, delineation, and at length personal reminiscences, occasionally of much merit, of a certain rough force, sincerity and picturesqueness, duly intervene. The scattered members of Scott's life do lie here, and could be disentangled. In a word, this compilation is the work of a manful, clear-seeing, conclusive man, and has been executed with the faculty and combination of faculties the public had a right to expect from the name attached to it. One thing we hear greatly blamed in Mr. Lockhart, that he has been too communicative, indiscreet, and has recorded much that ought to have lain suppressed. Persons are mentioned, and circumstances, not always of an ornamental sort. It would appear there is far less reticence than was looked for. Various persons, name and surname, have, received pawn, nay, the very hero of the biography is rendered unheroic. Unornamental facts of him, and of those he had to do with, being set forth in plain English, hence, personality, indiscretion, or worse, sanctities of private life, etc., etc. How delicate, decent as English biography, bless its mealy mouth. A Damocles sword of respectability hangs forever over the poor English life writer, as it does over poor English life in general, and reduces him to the verge of paralysis. Thus it has been said, there are no English lives worth reading except those of players, who by the nature of the case have bidden respectability good day. 
The English biographer has long felt that if in writing his man's biography, he wrote down anything that could by possibility offend any man, he had written wrong. The plain consequence was, that, properly speaking, no biography whatever could be produced. The poor biographer, having the fear not of God before his eyes, was obliged to retire as it were into vacuum, and write in the most melancholy, straitened manner, with only vacuum for a result. Vain that he wrote, and that we kept reading volume on volume, there was no biography, but some vague ghost of a biography, white, stainless, without feature or substance, vacuum, as we say, and wind and shadow, which indeed the material of it was. No man lives without jostling and being jostled, in all ways he has to elbow himself through the world, giving and receiving offense. His life is a battle, insofar as it is an entity at all. The very oyster, we suppose, comes in collision with oysters, undoubtedly enough it does come in collision with necessity and difficulty, and helps itself through, not as a perfect ideal oyster, but as an imperfect real one. Some kind of remorse must be known to the oyster, certain hatreds, certain pusillanimities. But as for man, his conflict is continual with the spirit of contradiction, that is without and within, with the evil spirit, or call it, with the weak, most necessitous, pitiable spirit, that is in others and in himself. His walk, like all walking, say the mechanicians, is a series of falls. To paint man's life is to represent these things. Let them be represented, fitly, with dignity and measure, but above all, let them be represented. No tragedy of Hamlet with the part of Hamlet omitted by particular desire. No ghost of a biography, let the Damocles sword of respectability, which, after all, is but a pasteboard one, threaten as it will. One hopes that the public taste is much mended in this matter, that vacuum biographies, with a good many other vacuities related to them, are withdrawn or withdrawing into vacuum. Probably it was Mr. Lockhart's feeling of what the great public would approve, that led him, open-eyed, into this offense against the small criticizing public, we joyfully accept the omen. Perhaps then, of all the praises copiously bestowed on his work, there is none in reality so creditable to him as this same censure, which has also been pretty copious. It is a censure better than a good many praises. He is found guilty of having said this and that, calculated not to be entirely pleasant to this man and that, in other words, calculated to give him and the thing he worked in a living set of features, not leave him vague, in the white beatified ghost condition. Several men, as we hear, cry out, See, there is something written not entirely pleasant to me. Good friend, it is pity, but who can help it? They that will crowd about bonfires may, sometimes very fairly, get their beards singed. It is the price they pay for such illumination. Natural twilight is safe and free to all. For our part, we hope all manner of biographies that are written in England will henceforth be written so. If it is that they be written otherwise, then it is still fitter that they be not written at all, to produce not things but ghosts of things can never be the duty of man. The biographer has this problem set before him, to delineate a likeness of the earthly pilgrimage of a man. He will compute well what profit is in it, and what disprofit, under which latter head this of offending any of his fellow creatures will surely not be forgotten. Nay, this may so swell the disprofit side of his account, that many an enterprise of biography, otherwise promising, shall require to be renounced. But once taken up, the rule before all rules is to do it, not to do the ghost of it.
In speaking of the man and men he has to deal with, he will of course keep all his charities about him, but all his eyes open. Far be it from him to set down aught untrue, nay, not to abstain from, and leave in oblivion much that is true. But having found a thing or things essential for his subject, and well computed the for and against, he will in very deed set down such thing or things, nothing doubting, having, we may say, the fear of God before his eyes, and no other fear whatever. Censure the biographer's prudence, dissent from the computation he made, or agree with it, be all malice of his, be all falsehood, nay, be all offensive avoidable inaccuracy, condemned and consumed, but know that by this plan only, executed as was possible, could the biographer hope to make a biography, and blame him not that he did what it had been the worst fault not to do. As to the accuracy or error of these statements about the Ballantines and other persons aggrieved, which are questions much mooted at present in some places, we know nothing at all. If they are inaccurate, let them be corrected, if the inaccuracy was avoidable, let the author bear rebuke and punishment for it. We can only say, these things carry no look of inaccuracy on the face of them, neither is anywhere the smallest trace of ill-will or unjust feeling discernible. Decidedly the probabilities are, until better evidence arise, the fair conclusion is, that this matter stands very much as it ought to do. Let the clatter of censure, therefore, propagate itself as far as it can. For Mr. Lockhart it virtually amounts to this very considerable praise, that, standing full in the face of the public, he has set at naught, and been among the first to do it, a public piece of cant, one of the commonest we have, and closely allied to many others of the fellest sort, as smooth as it looks. The other censure, of Scott being made unheroic, springs from the same stem, and is, perhaps, a still more wonderful flower of it. Your true hero must have no features, but be white, stainless, an impersonal ghost hero. But connected with this, there is a hypothesis now current, due probably to some man of name, for its own force would not carry it far, that Mr. Lockhart at heart has a dislike to Scott, and has done his best in an underhand treacherous manner to disrow him. Such hypothesis is actually current, he that has ears may hear it now and then. On which astonishing hypothesis, if a word must be said, it can only be an apology for silence, that there are things at which one stands struck silent, as at first sight of the infinite. For if Mr. Lockhart is fairly chargeable with any radical defect, if on any side his insight entirely fails him, it seems even to be in this, that Scott is altogether lovely to him, that Scott's greatness spreads out for him on all hands beyond reach of eye, that his very faults become beautiful, his vulgar worldlinesses are solid prudences, proprieties, and of his worth there is no measure. Does not the patient biographer dwell on his abbots, pirates, and hasty theatrical scene paintings, affectionately analyzing them, as if they were Raphael pictures, time-defying hamlets, Othellos? The novel manufactory, with its 15,000 L. a year, is sacred to him as creation of a genius, which carries the noble victor up to heaven. Scott is to Lockhart the unparalleled of the time, an object spreading out before him like a sea without shore. Of that astonishing hypothesis, let expressive silence be the only answer. And so in sum, with regard to Lockhart's life of Scott, readers that believe in us shall read it with the feeling that a man of talent, decision and insight wrote it, wrote it in seven volumes, not in one, because the public would pay for it better in that state but wrote it with courage, with frankness, sincerity, on the whole, in a very readable, recommendable manner, as things go.
whosoever needs it can purchase it, or purchase the loan of it, with assurance more than usual that he has where for his money. And now enough of the written life, we will glance a little at the man and his acted life. 